Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abismo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome, everybody, to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. I'm Kyle Kovacs, your host from Wheel Cornell, and we are absolutely delighted to have an esteemed group of panelists here with me today. First, we have Cynthia Keon, an associate professor from the University of, Mont of Montreal. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me, and it's great. Uh, looking forward to talking about these subjects with yourself and David. And right on cue, we also have David Chu from Mid-Atlantic Retina and Will's Eye Hospital. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Cynthia. It's good to see you guys. It's such a pleasure to be with you guys all today. A few notes on what we're going to be doing today. So we're going to succinctly kind of go over a couple different journal pieces that have come out or will be coming out in the near future and have a little discussion about them. First, we're going to summarize some of these journal pieces. We'll take a quick break afterwards and then have a longer roundtable discussion where my brilliant colleagues are gonna tell me exactly what I should be doing based on the journal findings uh, that we're gonna be discussing. So let's get started and hop right into it. Let's kick off the discussion with some of these literature articles. Um, the first paper we have is entitled, Outcomes of Eyes Undergoing Multiple Surgical Interventions After Failure of Primary Regmatogenous Retinal Detachment Repair by Emma Stenz et al. And it has just come out in May 2022 in Ophthalmology Retina. I wonder if I get Cynthia to maybe summarize some of this and kick off our discussion. Yeah, sure. So uh, let's delve right in since we all love talking about retinal detachment surgery and uh, how to repair it. So this was a um, retrospective uh, consecutive case series of patients from a um, practice with uh, multiple retina specialists uh, with cases dating back from 2016 up to 2020 that failed after primary uh, RRD repair and that underwent at least two uh, repair surgeries. Um, so in this group, they actually identified of, out of all their uh, over 2,100 patients, 166 eyes in 164 patients who needed two or more retinal repair surgeries. Um, so going over the findings, you know, the high level um, conclusion, well, first of all, the good news is that single operation success rates were very good and comparable to the numbers that we see floating in literature. So 93% of the patients uh, were reattached successfully after one surgery and remained so for the remainder of the, of the study. Um, and this, um, and for those who needed further repairs, after a second repair, the success rate anatomically was 72%. And after three repair surgeries, the success rate was 68%. So what they found is um, after when there were multiple surgeries that were needed, the final anatomic success was quite similar in those, whether it was two, three, four, or five um, surgeries, and the success at the end of all the surgeries was close to 96%. So that's a pretty good number, you know, above 90%, uh, above 95%. And they also looked at postoperative uh, visual acuity that was assessed in months three, six, and 12. And what they noted is that um, obviously after one or two surgeries, 
there was on average a gain in mean um, gained visual acuity. But once uh, further uh, additional repair surgery stacked up, uh, that um, gain in vision was starting to stagnate and began to be lost. So um, up to two repairs, there was an average of 0.12 logmar of visual acuity gained. Uh, if the patient or the eye needed three repairs, there was no change from the baseline vision at presentation with the detachment. And once you reach four or five repairs, there was loss of vision compared to baseline. And what was also interesting uh, was that they noted that during the second surgery, the eyes that were um, under silicone oil endotamponade, that being either 1,000 or 5,000, seemed to perform significantly better than eyes that uh, had C3F8 or SF6 gas in terms of whether they needed another surgery. So 20% were less likely to need a third surgery if they had silicone oil uh, versus um, C3F8. And... 38% less likely to need a third surgery if they use oil versus SF6. That's quite interesting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that later on. Um, and eyes that developed um, a third retinal detachment due to PVR were actually um, significantly more likely to need further surgeries than eyes that developed another RD because there was a tear or um, just a, a new finding or, track, uh, or a failure to reattach from the prior surgery. So the, you know, the main conclusions that we could draw from this was that the final anatomic success of these cases was quite good and uh, was similar in eyes that were achieved with more than two surgeries versus those that were just single surgeries. And uh, the visual acuity improvement you know, was increasing up until about two surgeries, but after that began to decrease with the higher number of surgeries. And uh, finally, tamponade choice seems to make a difference and be a key in the reoperation rate, as well as the presence of PVR at uh, the initial baseline presentation, which also was a prognostic factor for the recurrence rate of RRDs. That's it, guys. So thoughts? Great. Well, thank you, Cynthia. You know, PVR, I feel like, is the one thing that we hate to love to talk about as retinal sur surgeons. David, I wonder if you have any thoughts or reactions to some of this data. I think it's really interesting, and it plays into the central question of what happens to our reoperations. There's so much literature, first of all, focusing on the single operation anatomic success. So what happens and how can we decide on doing one surgery, which is still the best? I totally 100% agree with that's the most important thing, how to fix these eyes. But after they undergo one, two, three, or even more reoperations, what are their outcomes? And I love that it's addressing this. And I think that it becomes increasingly more heterogeneous as we go through more surgeries. And so I love the difference in terms of looking at the, the visual outcomes, the anatomic outcomes, and also the, the tamponade choice. And I do think that's really an exciting one. One follow-up question I had for the group was, you know, for me personally, when I detect that there is PVR as a result of a redetachment, right, that's what's causing the redetachment, I'm for that second surgery, almost always using silicone oil. You know, if the first surgery involved vitrectomy, not for example, a scleral buckle, but I'm almost always using silicone oil. I don't know what you guys think about that personally. I agree wholeheartedly. I, certainly if there's already PVR, they're getting oil for sure. The real question for me from this study is whether or not, you know, in, a, in an eye without PVR already, the data here is suggesting we should be leaning towards silicon oil, even if it's just a new break. Sorry if, if, you, if you would think otherwise, Cynthia. 
I mean, I think, you know, as, as Dave was saying, this is a this is a quite large group and they're looking at multiple factors and uh, obviously they're looking at uh, multivariate analysis and it's hard to kind of dissect different factors one from another, another. I think they're all sort of interconnected and it's hard to say whether, you know, um, as you said, the, the silicone oil, is it interdependent or independent from the other factors and sort of warranting, um, like you said, even for for primary <laughs> repairs and uh, detachments. And what I also thought was interesting and, you know, uh, David briefly uh, mentioned is also the use of scurrobuckling. You know, that, that wasn't really the focus of uh, the paper, but they did mention that, uh, you know, again, there's a, a large group of surgeons, some perform uh, buckling early on, other do scurrobuckle vitrectomies on second, third or fourth. So obviously I think those are also influencing, you know, the rate of recurrence, the PVR development. And I was actually curious about what your thoughts about, you know, um, combo cases uh, were, and, you know, do you, um, do you add, add that on pretty early on, or are you kind of a vital surgery number five, number six type of uh, person? Well, let's put that discussion of the artistry of when to put on the sclerobuckle for the panel discussion at the in a little bit. I want to move on to the other paper that we mentioned um, so that we have a little bit more evidence for our discussion. Um, this is entitled Factors Associated with Good Visual Acuity Outcomes After Retinectomy in Eyes with Proliferative Vitreoretinopathy. And the lead author is Rachel Israelovich. Um, this is coming out in the future in American Journal of Ophthalmology in August 2022. David, I, I wonder if you could take us through some of the findings from this study. Thank you so much, Kyle. Yeah, this is a wonderful paper, and I really love it. Um, so as you said, uh, the, the primary, the first author is Rachel uh, Israelovich. She's actually a fourth-year medical student at Jefferson. And as a matter of fact, I ran into her earlier this morning during her rotation. She's applying for ophthalmology. I've published with her personally. She is wonderful. Um, and the senior author is Jason Shu. And uh, I was with uh, my colleague, Dr. Shu, when I was a, a fellow, actually. And uh, it started, the genesis of this interesting uh, study was really the question. It really stemmed from one key clinical question is, which is, you know, classically, we think of retinal detachment repairs, and we all think about anatomic success, right? Did the patient stay attached for, for the rest of the patient's life? But this is addressing it from a very uh, unique and specific focus, which is how good are patients uh, going to see afterwards, number one, and specifically in the setting of what we believe to be a severe recurrent detachment associated with PVR that was so significant, it required retinectomy. And so when we think of severe recurrent detachments requiring retinectomy, I mean, I think for certain surgeons, the thought is, man, that's, the, you know, that's a pretty sick eye now, now, and we're really fighting for the anatomic success. How are we ever going to be able to, you know, get them even on the eye chart at all? And so this was a study addressing that specific question. We found that the minority of eyes who are able to achieve 2070 vision or better in the cases of a recurrent PVR detachment requiring retinectomy was on the order of about 18%. So it was less than a quarter of patients were able to achieve that level of great vision, but it's not zero. And it's really something to really aim for. And the other interesting thing about this paper is unlike so many retrospective studies, it was a true case control study. I mean, I just don't see that very much in the literature these days. And what uh, the authors here did was they took patients that were able to achieve that visual threshold and compared against patients who were not able to achieve that 2070 visual threshold and who were matched in terms of age as well as gender, age within two years. And they looked at, again, patients who had recurrent detachment, but were not controlled for all the other RRD anatomic factors that may or may not be associated with 
the development of eventual good vision. And so they analyzed this out of a cohort of about 5,500 uh, 5, eyes. And eventually the, the, the population that they had uh, available for a study was pared down eventually to just 62 eyes that, uh, for, the, for the good vision threshold. And they had about a two to one uh, control versus case uh, sample. So what they did was a univariate as well as multivariate analysis, looking for those predictive factors associated with good ultimate vision. So as far as the univariate uh, correlates, it was a faster mean time to the second surgical repair after the diagnosis of the recurrent detachment, a smaller mean size of the initial retinectomy that was made, fewer subsequent repair surgeries, a higher likelihood of having a macula on initial presentation, which certainly makes sense. And then on the multivariate analysis, they found, I think that's the most important thing out of this study, which is what are the significant portlets here? It's the size of the initial retinal detachment, the number of overall surgeries, the time again between the diagnosis of the recurrent detachment and the surgery itself, the preoperative visual acuity, which probably correlates with presenting macula status as well, and pseudophagia, which also, of course, makes sense when you're talking about multiple vitrectomies, retinectomies, oil, and things of that nature. So I think that's uh, ultimately the, the findings. And, and I think out of all of them, some of them, you would really say that does make sense. I can believe pseudophagia makes a contributing factor. But I think the key one is the timing between diagnosis of retinectomy, uh, excuse me, diagnosis of recurrent attachment and the surgery itself is a predictive factor. And I think that's the key takeaway is uh, to be sooner uh, to bring these patients back into the operating room rather than to try to let the, the membranes mature or things of that nature. Great. Well, thank you so much, David. Cynthia, I don't know if you have a quick take on, on uh, what David just presented to us. Well, first of all, I'm happy that David is the one summarizing this data. I mean, this real you know, real-time update from authors uh, with the Wales crowd, I think is very much appreciated. If you can get actually live updates, maybe uh, this is uh, really insider information. So that's much appreciated. Um, I really, yeah, I think that uh, the study design is quite rigorous and I like that. And I think using good visual acuity as, uh, you know, a uh, outcome is really something that's important. You know, um, in the prior study, we were talking a lot also about surgical anatomic success, but I think from obviously the patient's point of view and from the long-term outcome of, you know, what the patient sees, good vision is, is really what matters, you know, on a day-to-day -day functional level. So I think it was really interesting to look at um, the information from that perspective. And um, yeah, I think, um, just the data, as you said, it's the, the conclusions make sense, but also to have such a well-designed study sort of, uh, you know, confer and confirm those findings is really something I think that we can stand behind and uh, going forward, it's, uh, it's really, you know, a good um, piece of um, publication that we can depend on for, for future practice uh, patterns, as well as, you know, the time to recurrent surgery, as well as, you know, when to practice retinectomy versus um, some of the other factors we want to incorporate into our practice. Great. Well, thank you, Cynthia. On that note, let's um, take a quick break. On the backside of this, we're going to get into some more uplifting discussion of PVR RDs with our panel. We were just presented some interesting data on PVR retinal detachments and the simultaneously the bane of retina surgeons existence. And yet the thing that we end up talking about the most, I feel like spinning in circles. Um, there's a couple items that started to come up in our discussion of some of these papers, which we started to get into a discussion of. And I think one of those is from the first paper, uh, the sense paper about the use of silicon oil is the primary tamponade in a second 
RD surgery, maybe with a more favorable outcome. I don't know if this would sway either of you, Cynthia or David, to maybe consider that being a, a uniform primary tamponade for a second RD surgery. Like I said, I, I do really like silicon oil for the second one, especially when the really when PVR exists. And I think that's the vast majority. I hope that we're not dealing with situations where we are, it's basically two other situations, right? Failure of attachment of a primary scleral buckle for various reasons there. And that's not necessarily due to PVR. And a second is missed breaks, which if caught early enough is also not going to be associated with PVR. In the absence of those two specific criteria, I think the vast majority though are times when I do use uh, silicone oil for better or for worse. Yeah, I agree, David. I mean, I think for the patient as well, right? I mean, most of them, by the time already when the second surgery rolls around, they're highly motivated to go through a surgery that, you know, first of all, leaves a, um, a tamponade agent that has a more uh, predictable course of, uh, you know, staying power. You know, obviously with gas, the advantage is that it evaporates. You don't have to go in for a second surgery. But by the time they get back to a second surgery, there's recurrence already. The goal is really to have the best outcome for retinal reattachment. And I think in my personal experience and those of my colleagues, very often silicone oil would be the best choice. I'd love to, I'm wondering um, for Cynthia and Kyle, um, do you reserve, when are the situations when you put on a scleral buckle during a reoperation? That's something not directly addressed by the paper, but I'm just curious. It's uh, a good question. Um, I mean, first of all, to look at, looking at the numbers from the paper, um, uh, I'll just quote the numbers and see whether that aligns with what you do, right? So, um, so they were saying for their second surgery, um, by then 35% of the cases would have had a scleral buckle put on. Uh, by the third surgery, 87%. So pretty much, you know, I think it sounds like a third of the cases will have either a, co a combo case by the second surgery, and then almost everyone universally <laughs> earns a buckle when it gets to the third step. So, yeah. I think that that's pretty much in line, you know, with what I do. I mean, I, I would say in my surrounding my practice, um, vitrectomy is still king, but, uh, you know, most people would obviously for, unless there's special conditions, you know, age of the patient, the status of, um, uh, you know, the hyoid and uh, the sort of the amount of pathology, most would start with a vitrectomy first. Um, but I think definitely by, by third repair surgery, um, the patient warrants a, a scleral buckle. And the, by the second surgery, it's, it's a case by case. It depends on the patient and uh, on the pathology I see. You guys? I, I can't think of a recurrent RD that walked out of my OR or was wheeled out without a buckle also on that eye. I, I just once, well, first of all, if it was a vitrectomy for the primary surgery and the vitrectomy, vitrectomized eye starts to detach, usually there's a lot of detached retina when you come back in. I'm always fearful there's micro breaks or small. And, and at this point, I feel like it's a belt and suspenders approach to getting the retina to stick on as we'd have data to show, you know, we're starting to go down a path of, uh, you know, a downward spiral. So I can't think of, a, of one. I've, I've actually had a, more cases of patients with a, a small recurrence that were more of a pneumaticable in the office fix, right? Anything that could have been fixed with just a straight vitrectomy without the buckle with a recurrence of an RD is closer to a pneumatic in my hands than it is, you know, a vitrectomy without, you know, obviously in the absence of PBR, but uh, everybody gets a buckle. David? I think I'm between you guys. I'm somewhere in between. 
I generally, if the eye looks like it requires a retinectomy, it uh, doesn't matter the lens status. And the second surgery, if they didn't get a buckle, I usually don't do one. I just go to the uh, retinectomy because I think it's more posterior for the most parts, except for the two retinectomy edges, which are fairly high up and well supported by any endotamponade agent. But uh, in cases where I think that I can get away without doing a retinectomy, then almost always, if they don't have a buckle, they're getting a, a buckle, getting a posterior and relatively high, relatively aggressive buckle to try and as much as possible salvage that retina without retinectomy personally. I was wondering, do you do buckles in cases that already have some amount of retinectomy as well? Would you, would you put on, you know, do you have a cutoff of how much retinectomy is just retinectomy and vitrectomy or could still benefit from scleral buckle support? I think that's case by case personally. I will say that I personally have also added uh, scleral buckles after I start the vitrectomy. That's generally on the primary, not, not generally speaking the second, because that's just a quite an uncommon scenario, but I wouldn't be against it. And if it turns into a retinectomy that can be fairly anterior, pretty close to the vitreous space, where there is some buckle effect that reasonably could be obtained, I would say absolutely I would go for it. I mean, and plus with oil. David, you made one comment earlier that I, that I was kind of, that struck a chord with me, which is talking about your that first recurrent detachment and the fact that you said, if you catch it early, then maybe you don't have PVR yet right? But yet is the key thing. I always feel like when I'm reading data from these studies about the presence of PVR, PVR is the causative etiology for a recurrence, right? That it's always really hard to tease out because, you know, at some point when you have a recurrent RD, there will be PVR, whether it's causative or not. And I don't, I don't know how much that role of the causative PVR versus just the presence of PVR is important in dictating, you know, understanding the etiology for recurrent RD, because I think the management is, is sort of the same. But I wonder, you know, you started to allude to that ticking clock in your head about looking at a recurrence and how long has it been and what is our PVR clock. I don't know um, how any of the data from these studies or what your personal practice pattern is, you know, when you how you hear the, the hooves, you know, charging behind you of PVR with the recurrence. My gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. I just think that um, I'm trying to, I'm pushed to try to find an analogy of some sort of as much poorly understood and mistaught term as PVR, because it describes so many different things, primary, preoperative, PVR that's led to a detachment. And as you said, continued intrinsic contracture, as well as surface proliferation of membranes that also lead to contracture secondary to a recurrent detachment that happens afterwards. And this spectrum of different physiologic effects is just so interesting. And my gosh, I mean, they should be different terms that describe a slightly different thing. And yet we just use this amorphous term over here. But to your question, I mean, I think that the paper over here does suggest, I think, a really important lesson, which is that you should never try to let it mature. And I think you should try to take them back to the operating room, because I think that only leads to increased chance for probably macular involvement, as the data shows, leads to worse visual outcomes and decreased chance of them hitting that magical 2070 mark. By the way, that I think is just a, a binary way to a binary binarization of continuous spectrum of, of visual acuities, but, you know, better visual acuities nonetheless. Cynthia, how would you, you know, this is a lot of information that we think about very like objectively in terms of outcomes. How would you start or try to break this down for a patient, right? When you're, when you're going into your second surgery to set the tone for them and to try to integrate this into your counseling, like what the road that we're headed down? 
I mean, I think, Kyle, sometimes, you know, these patients, especially I would say post-COVID, some of them come with pretty uh, chronic pathologies, even on first presentation. So, or, you know, it's inferior, it's been sort of slowly brewing for a while. So you have a field already that this is probably going to be, you know, like a PVR fest with soup and uh, likely to require multiple surgeries. So I tend to try to set the tone relatively early, um, you know, in the sense that even from the sur first surgery uh, with the planning, I, you know, I obviously I, I give them the, the numbers, but say that this could be a multi-step approach, you know, that basically our goal is, uh, is not to, you know, the, the ultimate goal is to have as good vision as possible, but our goal right now is to increase the chances of retinal reattachment, be that, you know, multiple procedures together, uh, buckling, vitrectomy, or multiple steps of surgery with tamponade, which will ultimately perhaps need to be removed. So I try to give them, um, I would say I try to give the lay of the land with the most amount of steps possible and say that, you know, we kind of use whatever um, parts of that equation best fits the patient so that, you know, it will be adapted for their needs and for their eye, but ultimately that it could be a multiple step process so that, you know, we set the realistic expectations um, and that they can expect good, the best possible vision at the end of the process, but they're not, not they're not looking for, you know, that great vision, say uh, that's 2040 uh, post uh, say primary surgery, and then they redetach under gas and now they're totally, you know, redetach and then their visual outcomes will only be less and less good with every subsequent surgery that we need to uh, to perform to, to fight off the PVR. Well, I think we're with that, we're gonna start to bring it to a close here. I'd like to thank my my uh, my panelists here, David and Cynthia, for some really insightful commentary and really great presentation of some interesting data on PVRRD repairs. I also want to thank our audience for listening to the New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS, and stay tuned for further upcoming episodes.